Section two of a woman's journey round the world. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. A woman's journey round the world by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter one, part two. Fourth of August. This was the first day that it was announced by the heat that we were in a southern latitude. But, as was also the case the following day, the clear dark blue sky that generally overarches the Mediterranean in such exceeding loveliness was still wanting. We found, however, some slight compensation for this in the rising and setting of the sun, as these were often accompanied by unusual forms and colours of the clouds. We were now off Morocco and were fortunate enough to-day to perceive a great number of bonitos. Everyone on board bestirred himself, and on every side fish-hooks were cast overboard. Unluckily, only one bonito allowed himself to be entrapped by our friendly invitations. He made a dart at the bait, and his good-natured confidence procured us a fresh meal, of which we had long been deprived. On the 5th of August we saw land for the first time in twelve days. The sun was rising as the little island of Porto Santo greeted our sight. It is formed of peaked mountains which, by their shape, betray their volcanic origin. A few miles in advance of the island stands the beautiful Falcon Rock, like a sentinel upon the lookout. We sailed past Madeira, twenty-three miles from Porto Santo, the same day, but unluckily at such a distance that we could only perceive the long mountain chains by which the island is intersected. Near Madeira lie the rocky deserter islands, which are reckoned as forming part of Africa. Near these islands we passed a vessel running under reefed sails before the wind, whence the captain concluded that she was a cruiser looking after slavers. On the 6th of August we beheld for the first time flying fish, but at such a distance that we could scarcely distinguish them. On the 7th of August we neared the Canary Isles, but unfortunately, on account of the thick fog, we could not see them. We now caught the trade wind that blows from the east and is anxiously desired by all sailors. On the night of the ninth to 10th, we entered the tropics. We were now in daily expectation of greater heat and a clearer sky, but met with neither. The atmosphere was dull and hazy, and even in our own raw fatherland the sky could not have been so overcast, except upon some days in November. Every evening the clouds were piled upon one another, in such a way that we were continually expecting to see a water-spout. It was generally not before midnight that the heavens would gradually clear up, and allow us to admire the beautiful and dazzling constellations of the south. The captain told us that this was the fourteenth voyage he had made to the Brazils, during which time he had always found the heat very easily borne, and had never seen the sky otherwise than dull and lowering. He said that this was occasioned by the damp, unhealthy coast of Guinea, the ill effects of which were perceptible much further than where we then were, although the distance between us was 350 miles. In the tropics the quick transition from day to night is already very perceptible, Thirty-five or forty minutes after the setting of the sun, the deepest darkness reigns around. The difference in the length of day and night decreases more and more the nearer you approach the equator. 
At the equator itself the day and night are of equal duration. On the 14th and 15th of August we sailed parallel with the Cape de Verde Islands, from which we were not more than 23 miles distant, but which, on account of the hazy state of the weather, we could not see. During this period we used to be much amused by the small flocks of flying fish, which very often arose from the water so near the ship's side that we were enabled to examine them minutely. They are generally the size and colour of a herring. Their side fins, however, are longer and broader, and they have the power of spreading and closing them like little wings. They raise themselves about twelve or fifteen feet above the water, and then, after flying more than a distance of a hundred feet, dive down again for a moment beneath the waves to recommence directly afterwards. This occurs most frequently when they are pursued by bonitos or other foes. When they were flying at some distance from the ship, they really looked like elegant birds. We very frequently saw the bonitos also who were pursuing them endeavour to raise themselves above the water, but they seldom succeeded in raising more than their head. It is very difficult to catch one of these little denizens of the air, as they are to be secured neither by nets nor hooks, but sometimes the wind will drive them, during the night, upon the deck, where they are discovered in the morning, dead, not having sufficient strength to raise themselves from dry places. In this way I obtained a few specimens. Today, August 15th, we enjoyed a most interesting sight. We happened, exactly at twelve o'clock, to be in the sun's zenith, and the sunbeams fell so perpendicularly that every object was perfectly shadowless. We put books, chairs, ourselves in the sun, and were highly delighted with this unusual kind of amusement. Luckily, we had chanced to be at the right spot at the right time. Had we, at the same hour, been only one degree nearer or one degree further, we should have lost the entire sight. When we saw it, we were 14 degrees 6 minutes. A minute is equal to a nautical mile. All observations with the sextant were out of the question until we were once more some degrees from the zenith. Footnote. The sextant is a mathematical instrument by which the different degrees of longitude and latitude are determined and the hour known. The chronometers also are set by it. In order to find the latitude the ship is in, an observation is taken at noon, but only when the sun shines. This last is absolutely necessary, since it is from the shadow cast upon the figures of the instrument that the reckoning is made. The longitude can be determined both morning and afternoon, as the sun, in this case, is not necessary. End of footnote. 17th of August. Shoals of tunny fish fish four and five feet long and belonging to the dolphin tribe, were seen tumbling about the ship. A harpoon was quickly procured, and one of the sailors sent out with it on the bowsprit. But whether he had bad luck or was unskilled in the art of harpooning, he missed his mark. The most wonderful part of the story, though, was that all the fish disappeared as if by magic and did not appear again for some days. It seemed as if they had whispered and warned each other of the threatened danger. All the oftener, however, did we see another inhabitant of the sea, namely that beautiful mollusca, the Fisolida, called by the sailors Portuguese sailing-ship, Portuguese sailing-ship. When floating upon the surface of the sea, with its long crest, which it can elevate or depress at pleasure, 
It really resembles a delicate, tiny little sailing vessel. I was very desirous of catching one of these little creatures, but this could only be effected by means of a net, which I had not got, nor had I either needle or twine to make one. Necessity, however, is the mother of invention, so I manufactured a knitting needle of wood, unravelled some thick string, and in a few hours possessed a net. Very soon afterwards a mollusca had been captured and placed in a tub filled with sea-water. The little creature's body is about six inches long and two inches high. The crest extends above the whole of the back, and in the middle, where it is highest, measures about an inch and a half. Both the crest and body are transparent, and appear as if tinged with rose colour. From the belly, which is violet, are suspended a number of threads or arms of the same colour. I hung the little thing up to dry at the stern, outside the ship. Some of the threads reached down into the water, a depth of at least twelve feet, but most of them fell off. After the animal was dead, the crest remained erect, and the body perfectly filled out, but the beautiful rose colour gradually changed to white. 18th of August Today we had a heavy thunderstorm, for which we were very grateful, as it cooled the air considerably. Between one degree and two or three degrees north latitude, frequent changes in the weather are very common. For instance, on the morning of the 20th we were overtaken by a strong wind, which lashed up the sea to a great height, and continued until evening, when it gave way to a tropical shower, which we at home should call a perfect water-spout. The deck was instantaneously transformed into a lake, while at the same time the wind had so completely fallen that even the rudder enjoyed a holiday. This rain cost me a night's rest, for when I went to take possession of my berth, I found the bedclothes drenched through and through, and was fain to content myself with a wooden bench for a couch. On the 27th of August we got beyond these hostile latitudes, and were received by the anxiously desired southeast trade wind, which hurried us quickly on our voyage. We were now very near the equator, and, like all other travellers, wished very much to see the celebrated constellations of the south. I myself was most interested in the Southern Cross, and, as I could not find it among the stars, I begged the captain to point it out to me. Both he and the first mate, however, said that they had never heard of it, and the second mate was the only one to whom it did not appear entirely unknown. With his help, we really did discover in the spangled firmament four stars, which had something of the form of a somewhat crooked cross, but were certainly not remarkable in themselves, nor did they excite the least enthusiasm amongst us. A most magnificent spectacle was, on the contrary, formed by Orion, Jupiter, and Venus. The latter, indeed, shone so brilliantly that her gleams formed a silver furrow across the waves. The great frequency of falling stars is another fact that I cannot corroborate. They are perhaps more frequent than in cold climates, but are far from being as common as is said. And as for their size, I saw only one which surpassed ours, and this appeared about three times as large as an ordinary star. For some days we also had now seen the Cape, or Magellan's Clouds, and also the so-called Black Cloud. The first are bright, and like the Milky Way are formed of numberless small stars, invisible to the naked eye. The latter presents a black appearance, and is said to be produced by the absence of all stars whatever from this part of the heavens. All these different signs prepared us for the most interesting moment of our voyage, namely, 
passing the line. On the 29th of August at 10 o'clock p.m., we saluted the southern hemisphere for the first time. A feeling nearly allied to pride excited everyone, but more especially those who crossed the line for the first time. We shook each other by the hand and congratulated one another mutually, as if we had done some great and heroic deed. One of the passengers had brought with him a bottle or two of champagne to celebrate the event. The cork sprang gaily in the air, and with a joyful huzzah, the health of the new hemisphere was drunk. No festivities took place among the crew. This is at present the case in most vessels, as such amusements seldom end without drunkenness and disorder. The sailors, however, could not let the cabin boy, who passed the line for the first time, go quite scot-free, so he was well christened in a few buckets of salt water. Long before passing the line, we passengers had frequently spoken of all the sufferings and tortures we should be subjected to at the equator. Everyone had read or heard something exceedingly horrible, which he duly communicated to all the rest. One expected headache or colic. A second had pictured to himself the sailors falling down from exhaustion. A third dreaded such a fearful degree of heat that it would not only melt the pitch, but would so dry up the ship that nothing but continual throwing water over it could prevent its catching fire. While a fourth feared that all the provisions would be spoilt, and ourselves nearly starved to death. Footnote. The heat does not require to be very great in order to melt the pitch on a ship's seams. I have seen it become soft and form bladders when the thermometer stood at 81.5 in the sun. End of footnote. For my own part, I had already congratulated myself on the tragical stories I should be able to present to my readers. I beheld them shedding tears at the narration of the sufferings we had experienced, and I already appeared to myself half a martyr. Alas, I was sadly deceived. We all remained in perfectly good health. Not a sailor sank exhausted. The ship did not catch fire, and the provisions were not spoilt. They were just as bad as before. 3rd of September. From 2 degrees to 3 degrees south latitude, the wind is very irregular, and frequently excessively violent. Today we passed the 8 degrees south latitude without seeing land, which put the captain in the best of humours. He explained to us that if we had seen land, we should have been obliged to retrace our course almost to the line, because the current sets in with such violence towards the land, that the voyage could only be made at a proper distance. 7th of September. Between 10 degrees and 20 degrees south latitude, we again met with very peculiar prevalent winds. They are called vamperos, and oblige the sailor to be always on his guard, as they spring up very suddenly, and are often extremely violent. We were overtaken by one during the night, but luckily it was not of the worst kind. In a few hours it had entirely passed over, but the sea did not become calm again for a considerable time. On the ninth and 11th of September, we encountered some short gusts of the vamperos, the most violent being the last. 12th and 13th of September. The first was termed by the captain merely a stiffish breeze, but the second was entered in the log as a storm. Footnote. Every four hours the state of the wind, how many miles the vessel has made, in fact every occurrence is noted down in the log with great exactitude. The captain is obliged to show this book to the owners of the ship at the conclusion of the voyage. End of footnote. The stiffish breeze cost us one sail, the storm two. 
During the time it lasted, the sea ran so high that it was with the greatest difficulty we could eat. With one hand we were obliged to grasp the plate, and at the same time to hold fast on to the table, while with the other we managed with considerable difficulty to convey the food to our mouth. At night I was obliged to stow myself firmly in my berth with my cloaks and dresses to protect my body from being bruised black and blue. On the morning of the 13th I was on deck at break of day. The helmsman led me to the side of the vessel and told me to hold my head overboard and inhale the air. I breathed the most beautiful perfume of flowers. I looked round in astonishment and imagined that I must already be able to see the land. It was, however, still far distant, the soft perfume being merely drifted to us by the wind. It was very remarkable that inside the ship this perfume was not at all perceptible. The sea itself was covered with innumerable dead butterflies and moths, which had been carried out to sea by the storm. Two pretty little birds, quite exhausted by their long flight, were resting upon one of the yards. For us who, during two months and a half, had seen nothing but sky and water, all these things were most satisfactory, and we looked out anxiously for Cape Frio, which we were very near. The horizon, however, was lowering and hazy, and the sun had not force enough to tear the murky veil asunder. We looked forward with joy to the next morning, but during the night were overtaken by another storm, which lasted until two o'clock. The ship's course was changed, and she was driven as far as possible into the open sea, so that, in the end, we were glad enough to reach the next day the same position we had occupied the morning before. Today we caught no glimpse of land, but a few gulls and albatrosses from Cape Frio warned us that we were near it, and afforded us some little amusement. They swam close up to the ship's side, and eagerly swallowed every morsel of bread or meat that was thrown to them. The sailors tried to catch some with a hook and line, and were fortunate enough to succeed. They were placed upon the deck, and, to my great surprise, I perceived that they were unable to raise themselves from it. If we touched them, they merely dragged themselves with great difficulty a few paces further, although they could rise very easily from the surface of the water, and fly extremely high. One of the gentlemen was exceedingly anxious to kill and stuff one of them, but the superstition of the sailors was opposed to this. They said that if birds were killed on board ship, their death would be followed by long calms. We yielded to their wishes and restored the little creatures to the air and waves, their native elements. This was another proof that superstition is still deep-rooted in the minds of sailors. Of this we had afterwards many other instances. The captain, for example, was always very averse to the passengers amusing themselves with cards or any other game of chance. In another vessel, as I was informed, no one was allowed to write on Sunday, etc. Empty casks or locks of wood were also very frequently thrown overboard during a calm, probably as sacrifices to the deities of the winds. On the morning of the 16th of September, we at last had the good fortune to perceive the mountains before Rio Janeiro, and soon singled out the sugar-loaf. At two o'clock p.m. we entered the bay and port of Rio Janeiro. Immediately at the entrance of the bay are several conical rocks, some of which, like the sugar-loaf, rise singly from the sea, while others are joined at the base and are almost inaccessible. Footnote. Some years ago a sailor made an attempt to scale the sugar-loaf. He succeeded in attaining the summit, but never came down again. 
Most likely he made a false step and was precipitated into the sea. End of footnote. Between these ocean mountains, if I may be allowed the expression, are seen the most remarkably beautiful views, now extraordinary ravines, then some charmingly situated quarter of the town, presently the open sea, and the moment after some delightful bay. From the bay itself, at the end of which the capital is built, rise masses of rock, serving as foundations to different fortifications. On some of these eminences are chapels and fortresses. Ships are obliged to pass as near as possible to one of the largest of the latter, namely Santa Cruz, in order that their papers may be examined. From this fortress to the right stretches the beautiful mountain range of the Cerrados Orgoas, which, in conjunction with other mountains and hills, fringes a lovely bay, on the shores of which lie the little town of Praia Grande, some few villages and detached farmhouses. At the extremity of the principal bay stands Rio Janeiro, surrounded by a tolerably high chain of mountains, among which is the Corcovado, 2,100 feet high, behind which, more inland, is the Organ Mountain, which owes its name to the many gigantic peaks placed upright, one against the other, like the pipes of an organ. The highest peak is 5,000 feet high. One portion of the town is concealed by the Telegraph Mountain, and several hills on which, besides the Telegraph, there is a monastery of Capuchin monks and other smaller buildings. Of the town itself are seen several rows of houses and open squares, the great hospital, the monasteries of St. Lucia and Moro do Costello, the convent of St. Bento, and fine church of St. Candelaria, and some portions of the really magnificent aqueduct. Close to the sea is the public garden, Paseo Publico, of the town, which, from its fine palm trees and elegant stone gallery, with two summer houses, forms a striking object. To the left, upon eminences, stand some isolated churches and monasteries, such as St. Gloria, St. Teresa, etc. Near these are the Praia Flamingo and Botafogo, large villages with beautiful villas, pretty buildings and gardens, which stretch far away until lost in the neighbourhood of the Sugarloaf, and thus close this most wonderful panorama. In addition to all this, the many vessels, partly in the harbour before the town, partly anchored in the different bays, the rich and luxurious vegetation, and the foreign and novel appearance of the whole, help to form a picture of whose beauties my pen, unfortunately, can never convey an adequate idea. It rarely happens that a person is so lucky as to enjoy, immediately on his arrival, so beautiful and extensive a view as fell to my lot. Fogs, clouds, or a hazy state of the atmosphere very often conceal certain portions, and thus disturb the wonderful impression of the whole. Whenever this is the case, I would advise everyone who intends stopping any time in Rio Janeiro to take a boat on a perfectly clear day as far as Santa Cruz in order to behold this peculiarly beautiful prospect. It was almost dark before we reached the place of anchorage. We were first obliged to stop at Santa Cruz to have the ship's papers examined and then appear before an officer who took from us our passports and sealed letters then before a surgeon who inspected us to see if we had not brought the plague or yellow fever, and lastly before another officer who took possession of different packets and boxes and assigned us the spot to anchor in. It was now too late for us to land, and the captain alone proceeded on shore. 
We, however, remained for a long time on deck, contemplating the magnificent picture before us, until both land and sea lay shrouded in night. With a light heart did we all retire to rest, the goal of our long voyage having been attained without any misfortune worthy of being mentioned. A cruel piece of intelligence was in store for the poor tailor's wife alone, but the good captain did not break it to her to-day, in order to let her enjoy the undisturbed night's rest. As soon as the tailor heard that his wife was really on her passage out, he ran off with a negress, and left naught behind, but debts. The poor woman had given up a sure means of subsistence in her native land. She supported herself by cleaning lace and ladies' apparel, and had devoted her little savings to pay the expenses of her voyage, and all to find herself deserted and helpless in a strange hemisphere. Footnote. The worthy Lallemont family received her, a few days after her arrival, into their house. End of footnote. From Hamburg to Rio Janeiro is about 8,750 miles. End of chapter 1